0: This is Pandemic Planet, the podcast where we talk about the urgent health security threats facing the world, the geopolitical and societal challenges they present, and how the United States can best lead health security efforts abroad while protecting Americans at home. Pandemic Planet is the podcast series of the CSIS Commission on Strengthening America's Health Security. While our sister podcast series, Coronavirus Crisis Update, focuses on what's happening in America, Here on Pandemic Planet, we'll look at the global and geopolitical effects of health security threats. Welcome to Pandemic Planet. Hello, I'm Catherine Bliss with the CSIS Global Health Policy Center, and I'm joined today by Dr. Keith Martin founding executive director of the Consortium of Universities for Global Health. The CUGH, as it's also known, brings together students, faculty, researchers, and academic leaders focused on policy, programming, service delivery, and innovation in the field of global health. Now, each year, the consortium hosts an international meeting that gathers researchers, program implementers, and policymakers to share information about and debate current topics in the field. Its next meeting, which will take place virtually, has the theme of healthy people, healthy planet, social justice. And its focus will be the health impacts of climate change and what steps health practitioners and researchers can take to help communities adapt and mitigate the threat of climate change. Now, in the run-up to the 26th United Nations Climate Change Conference of Parties, or COP26, which was held in Glasgow, October 31st to November 13th, the CUGH hosted a virtual summit to discuss ways the research community can contribute to resolving global challenges at the intersection of climate change and health. Now, Keith is an emergency physician by training, served as a member of parliament in Canada in the House of Commons, and he brings a background in health crises and political negotiations to his work on complicated and difficult global health issues. So we're here today to discuss the many ways climate change and health intersect how university-based researchers are contributing to the work, what came out of COP26 as far as health and climate, and how we are likely to see work on health and climate evolve as we look ahead to the CUGH conference next spring and the next conference of parties, the 27th, which is scheduled to take place in Egypt in November of 2022. So, Keith, welcome to Pandemic Planet.
1: Catherine, it's wonderful to be with you here at CSIS.
0: So... First, let's talk about the ways in which climate and health intersect. There's global warming, heat, of course, and air pollution, or extreme weather events. Drought and flooding are dangerous to human health. We hear about changing temperatures, creating more hospitable zones for mosquitoes and other disease vectors. And, of course, as people leave areas that have become too hot or too dry to make a living, sometimes they come into contact with birds or animals that they haven't been in contact with before, So there's opportunity for the emergence of new zoonotic diseases. What do you see as the most important links between climate and health, and what should the global health community be thinking about as these changes continue to evolve?
1: That's the nub of the issue, isn't it, Catherine? It's a fantastic start off to this discussion. You're absolutely right. This is a deeply interwoven, interconnected problem that deals not only with a big H health problems we have, but the larger social determinants of health. And you itemized very well the different types of effects that climate change has on human beings. The challenge before us, of course, is to ensure that policymakers actually fully understand the consequences of action and the consequences of inaction. So where our community comes in, which are the big global health community, our 82 institutions and 32,000 people around the world, is really mobilizing that huge asset of very talented people around the world to be able to provide an evidence-based series of solutions to policymakers to implement what's necessary. So you actually got the buckets right. Climate change has huge impacts on infectious diseases. As the world warms and changes, we're coming into contact with more vectors and those diseases like malaria and Zika and yellow fever and others are changing and will change. You're seeing non-communicable diseases. You're seeing cardiovascular disease, pulmonary disorders, mental health. The mental health stresses of the climate change we have before us are preying on us in ways that are really having a big impact on disability. So all of those are affecting us, including big bucket items like food security or food insecurity. And then if you stand back and take a look at the impact of climate change, whether you're looking at the Sahal or you're looking at small island states in the Pacific, the small island states, as the leaders of those states said very powerfully at COP26, you wait, we drown. We don't exist. It's a matter of life and death whether or not you actually act. And if you look at the Sahel, you're seeing desertification and actually migration, conflict, and state instability as a consequence of climate change. So these are interwoven challenges with huge implications for nations around the world.
0: So thinking about these different agreements that are part of the overall U.N. convention, I mean, in 1992, uh, I think in Rio, countries came together to adopt the U.N. framework, Convention on Climate Change, Then in 1997, they added the Kyoto Protocol and more recently, of course, the Paris Agreement in 2015. But to what extent has protecting health figured into these international agreements? And, you know, do you see health researchers and health policymakers engaged in discussions with the climate scientists and and people who study diversity and, and some of these other challenges that you've outlined?
1: So in your opening comments, Catherine, you actually mentioned the pre-COP meeting we held on October the 15th, and your listeners can actually look at our website, cugh.org, and you can see the whole symposium we held. The genesis of that was a result of the inaction and lack of place and presence of health in previous COP meetings. So for your listeners, we need to remind ourselves there were 25 meetings before the one in Glasgow, right? Right and we have not been successful at dealing with this problem missing an action in this higher entire picture was health so what we decided CUG to do is we're not going to we're going to drive health into the agenda what was encouraging in the meeting in glasgow is that perhaps for the first time health had a place and presence within the meeting and it doesn't belie the fact that there's been incredible work done by the who the unep undp and others on this issue, but it hasn't risen to the level of policy in place where we'd like to have it in COP. And I think as we move forward, it's really important for all of us involved in this field to be able to drive forward and actually make sure that health is intimately integrated into the conversations and discussions that are going to take place into the future. One thing just to say about COPs and that people say this was a success. This was a failure. COPS are actually the final agreement. It's an agreement amongst 200 nations. It's a consensus agreement. So anytime you're going to have a consensus agreement, you can be sure of one thing. Everybody's going to be disappointed, right? Because no one's going to get everything they want or most of what they want. So in effect, that the outcome, the agreement at the end of the day is really what everybody agrees to, which is the lowest common denominator. The path forward, because we're way behind the eight ball, COP26 was too low, too slow, and is clearly insufficient to be able to meet the 1.5 degree cap and the 50% reduction in greenhouse gases that we have to achieve by 2030. So now the question forward is, how do we actually cleverly address the 20 top emitters because they are responsible for 80% of greenhouse gas emissions. In my view, we can provide an advocate for a clear path forward for those 20 countries to have a system of not voluntary, but obligatory targets that enable them to deal with what they're producing in a collaborative fashion Across their four sectors that produce 86% of greenhouse gases. So, that I think is the nub of the challenge. And that is the target we need to go forward if we're really serious about hitting 50% reduction by 2030.
0: So, you mentioned that you brought people together in this virtual seminar in October. And, Mm -hmm. you know, having spent time in the world of academia myself, you know, I know sometimes it can be challenging for people who are carrying out research and developing research papers that they're sharing with others in the field to kind of break out and become more comfortable engaging in public advocating for different kinds of positions. So I wanted to ask you to say a bit about how the CUGH works with its members to develop the skills and the the networks and the abilities to really become public scientists and advocate or the place of health within these climate discussions?
1: Well, you just hit an extremely important point, Catherine, is the need to actually bridge the gap between that production of knowledge and the application of that knowledge in policies. If knowledge just goes into a journal, it will have some utility to some people. But for a lot of that, that material that actually can is really important for public policies, I can tell you as a former parliamentarian, that never sees the light of day in legislatures around the world or problems around the world. The policymakers don't see it. So we have this gap, this chasm between these incredible people producing the knowledge on one hand and the people who ought to see it and utilize it in the other. And so at CUGH, we're trying to bridge that gap. There are many challenges, right? You're right. People in academia are not incentivized to actually do this work. The incentives are completely wrong in terms of encouraging these incredible people producing this work to be comfortable and not be marked against for becoming public actors, which I believe they, we desperately need to have more public scientists. So there's an incentive issue. There's also a training and a competence issue. You need to be able to have the skills to be able to communicate all that complex stuff that you put in a journal into everyday speak. The third part of that is you've got to build it into a story that hits not only people's mind, but I would argue even more importantly, their heart. You've got to be able to, and we know this, right, in terms of research, if you're really going to have an impact on what somebody does or does not do, you have to create a bit of an emotional response in them. And that way they actually remember what you said, but they also might feel compelled to act. And unless you can bridge that gap, and at CUJH we're trying to do that with partners like the Pulitzer Center for Crisis Reporting, Global Health Now at Johns Hopkins and others are partners of ours. National Geographic in the past has actually partnered with us in some things. So we're trying to take these remarkable people we work with in our global community and be able to bridge that gap through different tools, platforms, mechanisms, training, and others.
0: So in terms of the outcomes of COP26, was there anything that surprised you? And what are some of the issues that you feel there will be the potential to make really good progress on between now and COP27, which will take place next year.
1: Well, let me put my optimist hat on first. Shall we? The first thing that you hit, you were absolutely right when you mentioned about the issue of health, Catherine. For the first time, health actually had pride presence. The second thing was surprisingly perhaps to anybody who just tuned into COP, is that before this, the actual linkage between fossil fuels and global warming was hardly ever and, or prominently mentioned in, in the agreements. It was not that connection was deliberately hidden. So we've moved a long way, I think, in terms of countries to publicly acknowledge the connection because it's been known, we know, for decades. Second, that the urgency to act was there. So health was involved. Private creditors and private financers said, we need to act didn't put any money on the table, but all of that is good. Now, the other side, my realist hat, I'll flip back on. The bottom line is that we are continuing to losing the battle. So if you wanted to ask the question, well, how far are we into reducing greenhouse gases? Where we are right now, should I say, is 25% of where we should be in terms of the emissions we need to reduce by 2030, right? To get that 50% reduction, if we asked ourselves today, How far along are we in achieving that objective? We're only with current pledges and commitments at 25% of what we should have today. A central challenge is that these pledges are all voluntary. And anytime you have voluntary commitments, they do not work. They have to be obligatory. And this is where we can become really clever And where the 20 countries that are the primary emitters of greenhouse gases get on board and say, as we are throwing greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, that's actually an obstruction or a wall to development. It's not only a danger to the health of our citizens, but if the private sector is pushing back on action, you can argue to the private sector that the continued production of greenhouse gases and throwing it up into the atmosphere is actually a huge wall to obstruction. And as time passes, that wall is going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. So you're actually working against your own ability to make money into the future because of all the consequences that you described. Extreme heat, extreme weather events, food insecurity, migration, conflict, state instability. All that in a bucket are massive and growing problems. The other side to this coin is that there are not one but two existential challenges before us. And they're intimately entwined. One is the climate change one, of course. The second is the global loss in biodiversity. And that is also, I would argue, an even greater threat because extinction is forever. And as we're ripping apart the biodiversity network in front of us, that's causing huge implications for our health. The causes are the same. The anthropogenic destruction, human destruction of ecosystems, flip it on its other side, you can also argue very clearly and cogently, as Inger Andersen from UNEP and Akam Steiner from UNDP have said and others, Murray Marema of Convention on Biological Diversity, that the other option to deal with climate change, a part of the solution, are nature-based solutions. So if you protect those massive, powerful carbon sinks that we have, peatlands, grasslands, forests, not only are they going to address the climate change crisis, they're also going to address the biodiversity crisis And they're also going to improve the social determinants of health. So that's a win-win-win situation. And there's some pretty clever things we can assert now to be able to do this. Where to do it? IUCN's red list of critical ecosystems. Who to do it? The Global Environment Facility can actually get the funds and implement them at the World Bank. So you have structures in place. Now all of these are political choices. And whether we do or don't, is a matter of political decision-making that will happen now.
0: So you mentioned two kind of crises of the moment. There's climate change and the loss of biodiversity. Of course, we've been facing the COVID-19 pandemic now for two years with another third year now on the horizon. So, you know, we know the COP27 is going to be in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, middle of November of next year. Given its location, I would expect there will be something of a focus on Africa and how those countries in sub-Saharan Africa in particular are experiencing climate change and helping populations adapt. But we know that 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 region as well has been very hard hit by the pandemic, particularly in terms of deepening poverty, economic disruptions and, you know, what we've been seeing in terms of inequitable access to vaccines over, you know, the last year. I was going to ask you if you worried that these two crises, you know, climate change and the pandemic are Sort of in competition for financing, for attention, and for really the attention also of the scientific community to to you know address these issues. But since you mentioned biodiversity as well, I mean, are those three and kind of in conflict with each other? And to what extent can can working on the pandemic also, you know, provide opportunities for addressing some of the others. And I guess, you know, in asking that, I was thinking about certainly in 2020, I think the first year of the pandemic, there were reports that air pollution was down in a number of places because people were under lockdown. And so health outcomes improved for some populations that had otherwise, you know, experienced the negative effects of air pollution. So just wondering you know, about your thoughts on those, those kind of three crises and what can be done to ensure that they are reinforcing as opposed to competitive.
1: You're right. They could be competitive, but I would argue that the great opportunity before us, Catherine, is that they should be done collaboratively because they are inseparable. To use the example of the COVID-19 pandemic, or you can go back towards the Ebola virus, these are spillover events. So one of the drivers or risk factors for pandemics is the increasing closeness we have towards the natural world we're in and the chance that we have come across an animal that actually has a virus that spills over to us. In fact, 70% of new infectious diseases in the future are going to come from zoonotic, from animals, and they're going to spill over into us. A way to reduce that is to reduce our engagement with those animals. Part of the the driver of pandemic risk is actually the destruction of ecosystems that puts us closer to those animals. Therefore, what we need to do is we need to, the reduction in ecosystem destruction, intact ecosystems is not only a way to prevent pandemics, it's also a way to protect biodiversity and reduce the sixth extinction crisis we're under right now. It's also a very powerful way to address climate change. And then the fourth part of that, is that the way you manage ecosystems cleverly is actually a driver towards addressing the social determinants of health for communities that live around them. So if you look at the IUCN, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, has established approximately 80 what they call critical ecosystems, major carbon sinks, huge areas of biodiversity. Also, the interesting thing about that is that the overwhelming majority of those territories are actually the tenure belongs to Indigenous peoples, who are often falling to the bottom of the barrel when it comes to their economic and health outcomes. So a clever way to do this, I would argue, is that you can invest in a focused effort to protect those critical ecosystems by being able to work with Indigenous peoples to protect them, and in doing so, you reduce poverty for those communities, you address the biodiversity crisis, you also address climate change, and you're creating a greater stability in those areas. In the case of Africa and COP27, the continent, uh, this is a major repository of biodiversity of carbon sinks. The whole carbon, you know, the Congo Basin, is one of the two lungs of the planet. Regulates rain, regulates fresh water, biodiversity hub, It's a huge engine for global stability in terms of our weather patterns and regional stability in so many levels. So Amazonia and the Congo Basin, two lungs of the planet, we're destroying both of them. One point I do want to make, though, is that when we're looking at the impact of climate change, if you look into the future, what we're not actually recognizing, we didn't hear enough of this, I felt at COP, was what we call feedback loops. I'll give you an example. As the planet warms, way up in the north of our planet, we've got permafrost, the land is frozen. That's melting, but what's underneath it? Methane, methane is 25 times more powerful than carbon dioxide as a greenhouse gas. So as the temperature goes up, permafrost melts, methane is thrown up into the atmosphere, which accelerates the whole issue of climate change. You can look at other ones, one other one I want to talk about, because it's just off the coast here of the United States, are the ocean currents. That ocean current, is the temperatures of the planet warm, as the oceans warm, there's a breakdown of that ocean current that's running right now in the Atlantic, right off the coast of the United States. That is really important for food security. It's important for weather patterns. It affects the entire planet. So as the oceans warm, not only are the oceans acidifying, destroying the marine life, but it's also breaking down that ocean current. And as that ocean current breaks down, it has a huge impact upon weather patterns around the world, which has huge implications for food security and all of what we just spoke about.
0: So as we think about some of these changes on the near term and some of the the longer term implications, it seems clear that... Encouraging more people to become involved in science, whether through scientific research or science writing or just science communication, is is one way to improve understanding about the issues and, and their complexity. Your conference, I attended the one in San Francisco, I think back in 2016 or 2017 or so, and you know, it was really struck by the opportunities there for you know students and researchers and policymakers and and practitioners and very high level government officials you know really all coming together to to talk and exchange you know about the theme of the conference and and their own research your conference was scheduled to take place in Los Angeles if i'm not mistaken but you've you switched it to being online and i just wanted to ask if you could talk about what informed that decision was it just pandemic concerns or did climate change considerations also play a role in not wanting people to have to travel that far to come together. And, you know, just if you could say what you're hoping comes out of that virtual meeting in terms of the kinds of networking and opportunities for people to to really take what they are learning and exchanging with each other back to their communities to really, you know, use the science to advocate for a changing approach to, to the challenges we face.
1: The conference for anybody, for those who are listening, it's called CUGH2021.org. And we really encourage people to register for it now to get the early bird rates, the lowest cost rates. And it's next March. So we have actually a week of free satellite sessions that are half to full day sessions and then the main conference at the end of March. It's open to everybody so everybody can can come down. So we actually, you right, we changed it from the in-person one from L.A. to virtual. And the main reason was really an issue of equity because we knew that our colleagues around the world couldn't get access to vaccines, particularly in low- and middle-income countries. And we are determined at CUJH to make sure that we level the playing field to make sure that whatever we do is as accessible, as open, and as available as possible to everybody equally. And we felt really strongly that given the lack of access to vaccines in a good chunk of the world, particularly in low- to middle-income countries, fast-tracking forward, not enough people were going to be vaccinated because they simply wouldn't have access to the vaccines. So we paid a very hefty penalty to move it virtually, but we felt that was the right thing to do. Certainly the issues on climate change are really important, but uh, there's also benefits for people meeting face-to-face. But our primary driver was an issue of uh, equity. What I'd like to see the our attendees come to our conference. Because what we try to do, Catherine, as you said, is we try to make it as not hierarchical, that people from different places, different disciplines can come together at different levels, from different sectors can come to our meeting and be able to share knowledge, learn from each other, build collaborations, which are really important, and and take back when they go home, what we hope that they'll do is that, that whatever they learn at our conference, whoever they meet, that this will translate into action, whether it's new research collaborations, ways that they can teach, ways that they can learn, but really importantly, and climate change is the perfect example, unless we bridge the gap of what we know and translate that into public policy, we're dead in the water, right? The implications are huge. So, if we want to just research something again that is being researched, we have to, I think, be, which may be useful to research. Some, obviously, it's important to do the research that's necessary. But we cannot lose sight of the fact that we have a temporal emergency in front of us. Then we have to, I think, be aware that we don't want to. We want to ask ourselves, what is most important in 2021 going to 2022? In the case of climate change, you know, I certainly hope that our attendees will be able to take from the conference virtually and be able to implement that and drive that with the policymakers. Because at the end of the day, all of what we discussed today in terms of the what to do, those are political choices. And our members, our community, global health community, that is involved from different sectors, different disciplines, biomedical and non-biomedical. We need to be able to give to policymakers in a nonpartisan way what they should do, but importantly also share that with the public. The public drives the political or can do that. And it's up to us with a really, really, I think, powerful group of people, wherever they happen to be around the world, be able to engage the public. The public has to be on side. And and we don't do a good job, frankly, of engaging or communicating with them. And I would just, uh, you know, plea with the academic sector in particular to give their members the breath with an ability to do that. And for all of us involved in this large, expansive place in global health to work together in common purpose to make sure that those policies are translated into action, not wistful thinking.
0: Keith Martin, founding executive director of CUGH. Thank you so much for coming to talk with me today about climate change and health, some of the outcomes of the recent COP in Glasgow, what we should hope to see in the run up to the next conference of parties in Egypt in 2022, and how researchers and policymakers working on health and health programming in countries around the world can develop skills, incentives, and the inspiration to engage publicly about climate change and health and really advocate for a better future. Thank you very much.
1: Thanks for your time, Catherine. It was a pleasure.
0: If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts